as we start with this week's uh, episode of the show before the show, I feel like we owe everybody a big thank you. Um, we just, uh, Sam, today sent out some numbers for our listenership in uh, the month of August and over the summer. August, for like the fifth time this year, was the most listened month in the history of this podcast. And uh, thank you to all of you who have tuned in. It's super cool. Yeah, no, thank you so much to everybody out there who uh, continues to listen to us. And, um, you know, it's been really fun to watch metrics, I guess. Bet metrics is such like a big word in baseball right now, but to watch podcast metrics and, and see how the audience is growing. As I mentioned in the email, and I'll mention to you guys at home too, obviously we had a lot going for us in August in terms of there being a full month of Major League Baseball and things we know you guys care about, natural action on the field and prospects being called up and all that fun stuff. But um, the fact that so many of you were interested in the game, in the lower levels of the game, even at a time when minor league baseball isn't happening, unfortunately, is uh, really telling to us. And what that tells us is that you guys are still excited about the sport. You're excited about the young talent in the sport and where that young talent can take the entire game of baseball. And, um, you know, week in and week out, we're trying to bring you their stories and, and updates on where guys stand and who's new and who's coming and all that kind of stuff. And uh, to know that you guys are out there listening is really cool. I know from for me and for Tyler and for Ben and, and the rotating chair we have each week uh, with our mill writers uh, last week being Katie Wu, Josh Jackson and Joe Bloss and so many others that we've had on the show over the last couple of weeks. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here this week. Uh, we've got a lot to dive into this week. Um, but yeah, hope, hopefully September will be an even better month for, for all of us for many reasons. Yeah, but uh, big thanks to all of you. We're super excited about, uh, about that news and uh, excited to talk to you again on this week's episode of the show before the show. He is Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. Thanks for hanging out with us, uh, recording this on Wednesday, the 2nd of September, which means that we are two days past the Major League trade deadline in 2020. We saw a lot of guys on the move. We saw a lot of organizations uh, reshaping either their system or their Major League roster by reshaping their system. Uh, and there are a bunch of deals that we could discuss kind of all on their own merits, but we're going to get a sort of broader view of all of it. Sam, what stood out most to you? Obviously the, the San Diego Padres, I think are probably the team that has been most discussed as it pertains to the, uh, the 2020 trade deadline, but what are some of the biggest things that you took away from the deadline this year? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of these have been well-tread at this point. If you followed trade deadline coverage at all, um, the fact that the Padres were buyers is, is pretty huge given what we know of that franchise and how long it's been since they got in the postseason. It's an expanded postseason, but they're the, one of the most exciting teams in baseball. We've been beating that drum for years now, it feels like, knowing what the farm system could produce ever since Fernando Tatis Jr. and Chris Paddock got there. We tried to say, you know, more waves are coming, and now it's gotten to the point where they are bona fide contenders, and they're trying to supplement those farm bill pieces with – pieces outside the organization, Mike Clevenger being a big part of that in that trade for them. But what stands out from our standpoint here, covering the minor leagues and covering prospects is how they were able to do this without letting go of really their top prospects. Taylor Trammell, uh, one of their top 100 guys, was the only top 100 prospect traded at this year's deadline. Uh, and we'll get to him in, in a little bit. Um, but the fact that Mackenzie Gore is still in the organization, Luis Patino, Luis Campisano, uh, C.J. Abrams, uh, Robert Hassel III had to stay in. He can't be traded during the season right now, but it's still a really good draft pick they made this summer. He's still around. Ryan Weathers we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's still in the organization. 
a lot of the players that we were most excited about from that farm system are still a part of the organization and could conceivably, especially in the case of, of somebody like Mackenzie Gore, help out this year. So they, you know, the pipeline's still pretty good. Uh, we haven't done farm system rankings since the off season, but if I were to put it right now, I know MLB pipeline did updated theirs. They had the Padres at number three. I might actually still have the Padres at number two behind only the Tampa Bay Rays uh, because of that top level of pro prospects. The fact that they're able to do this tells you how strong the farm system was. The fact that they could trade, you know, looking at that Clevenger deal, let's, let's break it down here. They traded major leaguers, Austin Hedges, Kyle Quantrill and Josh Naylor. But they also traded Gabriel Arias, Joey Cantillo, and Owen Miller, who in other systems might be really, really solid prospects. For the Padres, their depth. Uh, you know, Arias is a really good shortstop coming off a breakout year last year at Class A Advanced Lake Elsinore. Uh, but at shortstop, they have Fernando Tatis Jr. He's hopefully going to be there for the long term. You know, it was going to be a couple of years until Arias bumped into that, but still – not a position of worry for them right now. Joey Cantillo had a breakout year last year at Class A Fort Wayne. He was a low draft pick, uh, and they turned in him into one of the most dominant pitchers at Class A last year. The stuff isn't quite there to match those numbers. Uh, he throws in the high 80s, maybe low 90s, but there's some deception coming from his delivery. He's a left-handed pitcher. Now, all of a sudden, they spin him into a potential ace in Mike Clevenger. And Owen Miller, again, a shortstop, probably a second baseman, middle infield depth, but someplace – the Padres have pretty well covered. They were aggressive with him last year, sending him to double A Amarillo in his first season. Now he moves to the Indians where they have some depth up the middle too, but they're going to, in a couple of years, try to figure out who is their long-term solution at shortstop because Francisco Lindor could be moved maybe as early as this off season, if they try to trade him or potentially in a few years when he hits free agency. Um, so, you know, this is one of those deals that seems to work out okay for both sides. Mike Clevenger seemed like surplus, which is crazy to think about uh, where he stood in that organization at the beginning of the season, but breaking COVID protocols, the ascent of Tristan McKenzie and him looking incredibly good uh, for the Indians meant they could trade him and the Padres in the same way could cash in some of their chips and get an even better pitcher and a potential ace for them to add to Paddock and Denelson Lamette. Um, so the Padres spending in this way, I know AJ Preller has always wanted to be a big buyer now taking advantage of that was really exciting. But the fact that they have so many top familiar prospects in the system is even more reason for San Diego fans to get excited. Um, you know, potentially having Clevenger, Gore, Patino, Lamette, and Paddock in some sort of rotation or some sort of system in which some guys are working as long men, some guys are working as openers. Uh, I didn't even mention Adrian Morahome. Uh, that's really, really exciting. So the Padres were the obvious winner here, but even from a minor league perspective, the fact that they kept so many guys around is huge for that organization going forward, not only in 2020, but 2021, 2022 as well. So obviously the Padres uh, with a ton of moves in a, a team trying to make a run right now in a strange season, and they are very well positioned in the, the playoff picture. Um, the rest of Major League Baseball, there are some other teams that uh, had some intriguing moves at the deadline. Cleveland, a team that is right now in a, a division where things have been somewhat surprising. I know the, the Detroit Tigers finished, uh, again, we're recording this on Wednesday. They finished last night, I believe a half game out of the, uh, the postseason picture, uh, half game behind Toronto in that American league central right now, it's the white Sox and the tribe deadlock. They're 22 and 14 as we record today, 
the White Sox seem pretty set with where they are right now. They've got such a talented group, still some talented pieces in the system. But Cleveland goes out and makes some moves. Tell us about what they did. Yeah, so talking about, like, Mike Clevenger, um, you know, they were able to trade him, like we said before, because Tristan McKenzie has done really well. But just looking at the prospect package that we brought that they brought back, uh, I specifically want to hire, highlight Joey Cantillo. Um, but just – I'll get to him in a second. But just the system as a whole right now, I'm actually pretty high on the Cleveland Indians system already. I think they have a lot of interesting pieces. But it's funny to look at them and think they only have one top 100 prospect in Nolan Jones. A little surprising to me, um, maybe not as surprising to people who don't follow this as closely because there's not a lot of household names here. Um, but there are, it is a lot of really good talent. So adding an Arias to that group, adding a Cantillo to that group, adding Owen Miller to that group only makes it deeper. The big thing about the Cleveland system right now is that it is deep, especially up the middle, as I said before, um, trying to find Lindor's replacement. Tyler Freeman used to be a top 100 prospect, kind of got pushed out of that mix because of the draft picks from this year and the lack in a way of graduations uh, and an inability for him to improve, at least sh show it to us. Um, but Brian Rocchio is there. They just drafted a shortstop in Carson Tucker, uh, brother of Cole Tucker of the Pittsburgh Pirates fame. Uh, so they adding Miller and Arias to that group only makes it deeper, only strengthens the idea that they will be able to file fall or find, excuse me, a uh, Lindor re replacement, which is huge because they're going to need that soon down the line. Like I said, maybe as soon as this offseason. Um, but looking at Cantillo, Cantillo is almost a perfect pitcher for the Cleveland system. What do I mean by that? Cleveland has thrived in the last couple of years at taking pitchers with really good control and bumping up their stuff to the point where they still find the zone, but they're getting it with a little bit of extra velocity, a little sharper breaking pitches. Shane Bieber's obviously the, the big example of that. I loved following Shane Bieber in the minors. The guy never walked anyone. He was consistently at the top of walk percentage rates across the minor leagues. And I always thought, okay, if he can get a little bit more out of his stuff, this guy could be really good. Lo and behold, that's what happened. As he got to Columbus, as he got to Cleveland, he was bumping up that velocity just a little bit to the point where he's now the Cy Young favorite in the American League. I don't think it's particularly close. Uh, he's their obvious ace. He, at a time when they used to have Bauer and Clevenger, who knew that it would be Bieber to be the number one pitcher in, in that Cleveland organization he certainly got there now but they've done it with other pitchers where Aaron Savali Zach Plesak who I know we're not all high on Zach Plesak right now but that's the type of pitcher he was in the minors as well Joey Cantillo pretty good control numbers last year uh, between class A and class A advanced like I said the velocity is not there yet and he's a left-hander unlike some of these other guys who are right-handers but if Cleveland can work its magic again get him a little bit more velocity so he's hitting 92, 93 with more regularity, maybe even 94, 95. Everything else is there for him to be a really, really good pitcher, and it only helps that he's throwing the ball from the left-hand side. So uh, the fact that Cleveland picked him up causes me to arch my eyebrow a little bit in a Dwayne The Rock Johnson way. And it, Cantillo is somebody I was already going to be following just to see if he can carry that breakout he had last year to the upper levels. Now he's in the perfect system for that to happen. So Cleveland um, – I think did fairly well here uh, for getting rid of Clevenger. Yeah, he he has some years of control left. Yeah, he's a really good pitcher when he's following COVID protocols. Um, but to get a deeper system at a time when they already had a deep system, 
is, is really good work for them. And, and I'll be following this group of three pretty closely uh, whenever minor league baseball does return in 2021. Last element of this trade deadline, Sam, that I want to talk about, the uh, seemingly absurd number of players to be named later who were included in deals. Uh, Sam's got a great tool shed column that is up on the site right now, uh, five trade deadline takeaways. There were 30 players to be named who were traded in August. And uh, you point out in the David Phelps deal alone, three players to be named later were sent from the Phillies to the Brewers. What's the deal with this? Yeah, so part of the, the COVID rules of 2020, right, are that, and we'll talk to Connor Siebold about this in a little bit, is that technically you're only allowed to be traded if you are a member of the, the other team's 60-man player pool. Now, we saw a rush of prospects added in August to player pools. Part of that was to get them in place, to get work, uh, you know, to allow them to see minor league coaches and, and see player development people and all that, and that's great. But it really made me think that some decent prospects could be traded because now they were officially part of the pool. That didn't really end up happening. Like we said, Taylor Trammell was the only top 100 prospect traded this year. Um, but one thing that we didn't, at least wasn't obvious at the forefront, but obviously GMs and other decision makers were thinking about this, just because you can't name the player doesn't mean you can't trade them. So there were a lot of these deals in which you know that GMs were sitting down and saying, hey, we will agree to send you Johnson. I don't know, name I'm pulling out of my hat. Um, but like the names were agreed to, they just can't publicly say it because they're not part of the player pool. It, it was a way they got around it. And that's unfortunate for these prospects because you know if you are a member of the Phillies organization who is traded or you know who wasn't part of the player pool, now, unless you've heard directly from the club, you might be thinking the rest of the off or the rest of the season and into the postseason, I could be traded when all this is over. Um, so it, it's really unfortunate way of going about it. I, I don't really see the advantage of limiting it to the 60 man player pool. Hopefully the 60 man player pool is just a 2020 thing to begin with. Like that's it. We're, we're just doing it this year. We know there's no minor leagues. The reason it was there is to have guys ready to potentially be called up and working out together and all that. Um, so hopefully that doesn't exist in 2021 anyways, but uh, players to be named later used to be like, Hey, let's just get this deal done now and we'll figure out the, the details later. This year it was used in a way of like, Hey, the rules say we can't do this, but let's do it anyways and circumvent that. And that's, it's just a mockery of the process. Let's, let's call it what it is. Um, so I wish that wouldn't have been in place. You saw some teams actually leaking who they were trading uh, anyway, I, I saw, you know, Mike Miner got traded from the Rangers to the A's and pretty quickly everybody knew who the Rangers were getting in that deal. And it was 2019 picks, Marcus Smith and Dustin Harris, uh, even though the team could not technically name them. Um, so good for those guys for knowing, but they tech, technically can't join the Texas system until after the year. Um, so it, it, it's just a fluke thing in 2020. Uh, I think it's unfortunate the way it was handled to begin with, with the rules in place. Um, but like I said, hopefully it's, it's something we leave behind in this very strange season. Uh, Tyler, before we wrap up here, as, as somebody was following the trade deadline and the Rockies were involved, they got Michael Givens. They traded uh, two of their really good prospects in Taron Vavra and uh, Phil Nevin, not Phil Nevin, Tyler Nevin, excuse me. If they traded Phil Nevin, that would be something. Uh, Tyler Nevin. But what did you make of this trade deadline? Did it feel more active to you? Did it feel less active? Did it feel just about right? Like 
How did this trade deadline feel on your end? It felt more active than I was expecting it to feel. I figured uh, a lot of teams kind of knowing where they stood after a month and a half of play in a year in which uh, half over half the teams in each league are going to make the playoffs. I did not think that we were going to see that many moves, but I think uh, the the flip side of that coin is, you know, and I think the the Padres are kind of the prime example of this right now. If you can try to catch lightning in a bottle in the weirdest and shortest season in baseball history and maybe do something that your franchise has never done, win a World Series or something like that, why not go for that? Um, the, the other thing that played into this, which was uh, I thought would be a factor and probably was in front offices and all that, is the difficulty of and we'll talk about this coming up here with, with Connor Siebold in a little bit. And thankfully he didn't have to go and he actually notes uh, that he didn't have to go across the country or something like that. But the difficulty in trading prospects right now or in trading major league guys right now and asking them in the middle of a pandemic to pick up and move, uh, whether it's across the country or across the time zone or whatever, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that that has never been thought about before this year. Um, so I figured that organizations might be a little bit more conservative in their approach in that regard, but it was more active than I thought it was going to be. What? How did you see it in terms of the level of activity? Yeah, no, I was surprised at how normal of a year it felt like. You mentioned my tool shed before. That's how I kind of wrote about it. It's like, all in all, this was a normal year. I mean, there wasn't a – like you know, Taylor Trammell, and we have some Taylor Trammell facts later. I know we keep bringing up his name. Don't worry. We'll get to him at the end of the show. Uh, but he was the only top 100 prospect traded, and that wasn't normal in terms of that. Like, yeah. teams were not willing to sell their, their biggest assets from the Meyer League pipeline, but they were willing to be active. Uh, there were fewer trades for rentals than I was expecting. I'll put it, put it that way. Like, I, I thought there would be a lot of trades for rentals just because teams would be more willing to part with somebody who's not going to be with the team for one month. Like, but at that point, you might not even be willing to meet a price for that because you're not going to trade much for one month of a player. Um, so we saw more deals for like Clevenger, uh, who, you know, it, it's multiple years of control for him. Mitch Moreland going from the Red Sox to the Padres got the Red Sox back a couple decent prospects in Jason Rosario and, and Hudson Potts because Mitch Moreland has an option for next year that's very team friendly at only $3 million. And especially if this DH sticks in the NL, he has additional value. Um, so it, teams were able to work out some more creative deals than I was expecting them to for controllable players. Um, because I think that's the big thing right now is that, yeah, the Padres did go fairly, not, I won't say all in on 2020, but they made some big moves in anticipation of a deep postseason run this year. But they also got guys like Clevenger, Moreland, Austin Nola from Seattle, who they're going to be able to use next year as well. Um, and that's big. And that, that's just being kind of opportunistic and, and finding teams that were selling and getting those guys for multiple years. Um, but I, I thought this was, wasn't going to be much. Everybody was going to stick to what they had. But it's more fun when teams are active, and, and this was certainly part of that. I wish there would have been a Lance Lynn deal. That's what I will say. We'll, we'll wrap it up with that. Like The Texas Rangers really should have found a way to make a Lance Lynn deal happened the Dodgers were being mentioned at the time and the Dodgers we know have tons of prospects to trade the Yankees seemed interested uh, they need some starting pitching help the the Braves should have been interested uh, I know there were some rumors floating around about maybe Drew Waters going uh, that would have been more fun Lance Lynn I think would have been the big deal uh, of this trade deadline season and it seemed like the closest but it never happened but otherwise uh, a little bit more active than we were expecting in this weird year 
So, one of the guys who was on the move in this trade deadline season, Connor Siebold, will join the show coming up next. Now a member of the Boston Red Sox organization, traded there from the Phillies. Uh, we'll hear what that whole process was like and uh, what it's been like getting acclimated to a new organization in this strange 2020 campaign. Connor Siebold joins the show next. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Talking about the trade deadline uh, last segment and uh, in the run-up to the trade deadline in 2020, our guest on this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast found himself as one of the traded prospects uh, in this strange and uh, and surreal and shortened 2020 campaign. But now, a couple weeks into getting settled in with his new organization, Boston Red Sox uh, right-handed pitcher Connor Siebold joins the show, 23rd-ranked prospect in that system right now. Connor, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, just got back from the field. Got a little rain today, so uh, no inner squad, but it's all good. Well, tell us about the last couple of weeks. August 21st, uh, you get the news. You've been traded as a part of a, a package, a couple of players going to Boston in exchange for a couple of, uh, of pitchers. It was a, an all-pitcher deal, actually. Tell us about um, how that whole thing went down. It was August 21st, so it's a couple of weeks ago now, but um, still probably feels a little strange. What uh, what have the last couple of weeks been like for you? Um. I'm definitely still getting used to it. Um, you know, I, I'll still get to the, the field, and it's weird not seeing, like, the same faces that I was seeing over in uh, in Lehigh. But um, slowly but surely, uh, getting more comfortable. But, uh, no, it's, it's been cool so far. Um, they, they've treated us really well. Um, they, they got us in really quick. Like, they – obviously, there's, like, the intake period where they have to have us kind of be on our, on our own. But uh, once that was done – uh, we were thrown right into it, and so far, so good. This uh, year, obviously, is weird enough in every respect, but to be traded during this year and to be uh, somebody who's at one alternate site and, and going to another one throws a whole different set of, of wrinkles into it. When you got the news and you figured out, all right, well, now I kind of got to move and I got to do all this stuff, how how do you handle that in a year like 2020? Um. Well... I mean, obviously having to pack up one night and move the next uh, is always an adventure. But uh, on the bright side, it wasn't anywhere, like, too far. I'm not, like, flying across country or anything. So that's that's good at least. But, um, I mean, it, it was it was kind of a, like, last-minute kind of thing, I guess, because I got the call, I think, at, like, 9 at night that they were going to – pull the trigger on this deal and that I was going to come or uh, get traded to the Red Sox. And, um, the next day I was 
I had all my stuff together heading up to Rhode Island around like 11. So it was, it was a quick turnaround. And so, um, that part of it was crazy, but like I said, like it could have been a lot, lot crazier. And you mentioned your time at, at the alternate site in Lehigh before that. Um, you know, one of the interesting wrinkles of this season is that technically you're not supposed to be traded or named in a trade at the very least, unless you were part of the 60 man player pool. Uh, it's, it's obvious that the, the Phillies were going to try to be bullpen buyers at the deadline. What was just like the scene like at the alternate site with all of you guys together, some of whom might've been a double a, some might've been at high a or even triple a, um, all knowing that you guys could be the ones traded in this scenario. It, it's not like, Oh, you know, everybody spread out. Everybody was centralized around that Lehigh site. So what, what was the scene like there? Um, well, as far as like the whole like trade, uh, trading thing on the mind, I honestly didn't even think about it until that morning. Like, Oh, there might be a chance that I get traded today. Cause the whole thing about like, Oh, the Phillies are going after workmen stuff started coming out. And it was like, it kind of dawned on me like, well, I guess some of us are potentially going to be on the move. And that's when it like really first clicked in. And then sure enough, later that night, uh, you know, everything went down. And so, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it really, uh, was on anybody's mind up until like stuff started happening. Um, but I mean, overall the, the vibe there was pretty consistently just like, you know, it's, it's, tough but like it's tough having to be here every day doing the same thing but i mean we were so close to the big league so it, it was it was it that's what kept us going uh in that time but uh yeah overall it was kind of just like a, a whirlwind where it wasn't even on anybody's mind and then all of a sudden oh wow this could happen kind of thing mm. and what was that transition period like? I know you talked about the intake time and you and Nick Pavetta had to be kind of on your own for a little while until you were given the green light. Um, but at what point do you, have you even gone through this yet of switching from showing this new organization what you have? Uh, obviously, they knew a lot about you. There's a reason why they acquired you. Uh, so showing new coaches, new staff, what you have versus trying to gel into this organization and trying to fit a puzzle piece going forward. What is that transition like, especially now when you're not technically pitching for a minor league team? Um, I mean, when we first got here, obviously like you take three or four days off from like doing your regular thing, you're, you're thrown out of your, your uh, routine a little bit. Um, I mean, it was just like show up, play catch, go home. And that was it for three or four days. And, um, like coming back after it, I think my, our first day on the field, we actually had bullpens and, uh, it like, I don't know how, I don't know how Nick's were or was, but, uh, mine was pretty bad, but, uh, <laughs> like the coaches were pretty like understanding that, Oh, this guy's got to knock off some rust. He hasn't done anything like three or four days. So, uh, just kind of like they, they, they were cool about like the transition and like letting me kind of like get back into my rhythm. And I mean, since then it's been pretty smooth sailing, but, um, I mean, it, it, you definitely want to make a good first impression. And I mean, I pitched in the game the other day, did pretty well. And I thought I left a good mark, uh, as far as like first impressions go. 
And um, I think that's huge, obviously, just like kind of reaffirming uh, to a team like, okay, you traded for this, so I'm going to try and give you this. And so far, I'd say I've done an okay job of it, small sample size, but, you know, it. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm pretty happy with what's uh, gone down so far. And when you say they traded for this, I know, I know Hein Bloom talked about, you know, you having a, a starting profile and them really liking your stuff so far, especially coming off the AFL. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but what do you feel like, what expectations you feel like you have to meet given the conversations you've had with them so far? Um, well, it's evident that they, they traded for uh, Nick and I for a reason. Like they, they really like what they saw. Um, they feel like we're going to be, uh, pieces in the upcoming future of this organization and I mean it's it's a big deal but I mean you can't really let it change what you do it, I mean that's been the biggest thing for me is not trying to do too much not trying to be something that I'm not um, and kind of just sticking with what's made me successful for the last uh, couple of years Connor, last year, um, let's let's go back to, you know, this time nine months ago when we were all uh, living relatively normal lives, and think about the 2019 season. Uh, 2019, you you've got an oblique issue, and it limits you uh, on the minor league side to 12 appearances, and the numbers are good over those 12 appearances, but it's really after the season you get healthy, you go to the fall league, uh, and really break out, and to get that experience is always something big uh, for any prospect, but especially in a season in which you're kind of trying to make up innings and do all those types of things. What did the fall league do for you from a, a confidence standpoint to be able to, you know, somewhat sell? salvage uh, a little bit of 2019 take us through that that experience um well for me it was just kind of doing what i thought i would have been doing during the season like like what we just said um where i had that small sample size and at the end of uh the double a season that went really well and i think like the fall league being a continuation of that success was just a testament of like hey i mean yeah i've been gone for four months or whatever it is, but I'm, I'm still very much here. Like I'm, I'm, I deserve to be at this level. I, I trust myself to be able to pitch at this level consistently and have success. And so I think uh, the fall league was uh, for me, at least a, a testament of that and uh, kind of, you know, cementing that confidence and kind of showing people like, Hey, don't forget about me. And so I think that was, I think that was huge. When you go down there, um, you're there with such a talented group from the Philly side. Uh, Alec Bohm, Spencer Howard, both of whom are in the big leagues now. Mickey Moniak was there. What's it like, especially for those couple of guys, watching them now in the major leagues and kind of realizing, man, I'm, I'm really close. What's it been like seeing their, uh, their pathway this year to reach the majors, even in such an unorthodox year? It's been so cool, man. I mean, like, it, it, it feels weird to like, uh, tweets from your, your former team, kind of, <laughs> when they post about your uh, your your uh, buddies and teammates. But I mean, if Spencer has a good night and they post about it, I'm gonna like it. I don't care. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, foam hits, if foam hits the nuke and like I, I'm I'm all over that. So I mean, uh, just like for those guys to be doing what they're doing right now is it's, it's fun to watch, man. They're both doing great. Um, I think, uh, I think they're only going to get better once they like, 
once they have like a little bit more experience up there and it's, it's so fun to watch, but I mean, it does put into perspective, um, like how close you are. And, um, I think that for me, I mean, it's like, I, like I don't have the stuff that Spencer does obviously, but I feel like I can keep pace with him, um, as far as like results go and everything. So, I mean, for me, I think it's just, you know, just waiting for the opportunity to come up and taking it and hopefully, uh, it comes up sooner than later and, uh, I get to join him up there. Maybe not on the same team, but you know, in the same, uh, the same aspect, you know? Yeah. And just to go back to the AFL, um, and how dominant you were there. You had a 106 ERA, 22 strikeouts, and 17 innings pitched. Uh, in many ways, that was the last time we got to see you publicly, really, uh, on a on a baseball field. And the same thing for the Red Sox. You know, alternate site stuff. I know there was some stuff about sharing data and being able to do that. But in many ways, the last time they got to really scout you was in the AFL. How much do you feel like ending on that note last year propelled you? to the point where another organization will look to go out and get you in a major league trade like this? Well, I mean, everything over there is under the microscope. You have scouts from every team at pretty much every game and they're, they're looking for guys that, you know, in their future, they could see themselves going after. And so I think that um, the way I performed kind of set me up for, for that to happen. And um, I'd like to imagine that a few teams were really, looking to try and get me and turns out one was and um yeah i mean that <laughs> that ended up obviously happening and uh yeah i, I think the the fall league was just a, a huge opportunity for me to kind of prove myself like i said and yeah and i talked to you last year during that fall league run and one of the things that stood out from that conversation was we talked about your changeup, and a lot of scouts believe that it's one of your best pitches obviously but what stands out to me is that some even analytics pick it up as a curveball because it's got so much movement and it it dives down so well uh what is the development of that pitch been like since the afl what are you able to do with it now and what are you still working on with it um Honestly, uh, I feel like the shutdown kind of uh, hindered it a little bit. It like it was hard to keep it consistent without someone kind of like tugging my leash and telling me, "Hey, don't like overpronate or anything. Don't do that." So I think uh, once we got out here, once we started going again, I, I kind of like got the feel back for it, and like now it's it's back to where it was. It's 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 nasty again, but. Um, yeah, I mean, early on it was kind of it was kind of tough because it, it was like my best pitch isn't here, and it took me a couple outings for it to come back. Uh, and then after that, it's been it's been pretty smooth sailing, I'd say. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the money pitch right now. That's like what off of my fastball is going to get the most swings and misses. It's going to keep a lot of hitters um, from getting comfortable in the box. And I mean, I. I know my strengths and I, I know that that is one of my main strengths, the ability to throw that consistently for a strike and get swings and misses on it. I find that interesting what you said about the shutdown and how that affects pitches. You know, I know there's a lot of communication in organizations about working on stuff, but unless you have a pitching coach over your shoulder, that's difficult at 
you know, for the months of time that we all missed uh, in the game. What other effects do you feel like the shutdown had on you as a pitcher? And where do you feel like you've developed maybe some of your other pitches in the last couple of months, both working on your own and now at the alternate sites? Um, well, talking about the shutdown, it, like, it, it was tough, I'd assume, for everybody because, you know what they say is, like, you're your own best pitching coach. Well, sometimes if you don't know, like, for certain things how to be your best pitching coach, you can kind of, like, get into bad habits. And I, I felt like, like with the changeup, I said I was overpronating, and that was a bad habit I got into kind of. And so um, getting back to actually speaking with, like, pitching coaches and having them, like, actually watch me and um, – the same goes for like my slider and like just the arm slots, the arm action that goes with both of those pitches and keeping them consistent to where they were last year was kind of the hardest part about uh, this, this whole shutdown. I'd say it's just it, it, like, it, it, it's tough to say just cause um, it, it was such a weird time and you don't, like I said, you don't really have anybody talking on your leash but it, it's just it was such a weird thing to come back and be like why am I not getting swings and misses on these pitches anymore and then it turns out oh I'm doing this way different um but like getting to work with the guys over in Philly and now the guys over here they've it's it's I mean I I, I, I feel like I'm back to where I was last year at the end and uh, again, I, I feel like I'm in a good spot. And uh, now joining the Red Sox organization, obviously th things aren't going great on the major league side, but I feel like this is a really good time for an upper level arm like yourself to join the club because they are trying out so many different arms this year at the major league level and trying to see who sticks. What is the atmosphere like among you pitchers in Pawtucket right now, knowing everybody's basically a, a moment away from getting that call and, and how close do you feel uh, to the majors now in this new organization? Um, overall, I mean, it seems like it's all hands on deck. Um, we, we had like two or three guys just go up and it felt like half the team just left. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I feel like I'm close. I don't know if my opportunity is going to pop up this year. I guess it kind of just depends on, uh, what transpires for the rest of the, the season and, uh, what, uh, Heim and everybody decides to do so I it's not really in my control uh, all I can do is kind of try and force their hand and see if they want to take a, a chance on me this season or wait till next year either way I mean I'm I'm looking forward to it I, it I know I'm I'm pretty close and I can I can feel it at times and so uh, you know controlling the controllables and patience is just the biggest thing right now for me I guess all right, Connor, we'll, we'll end on this one. Um, we talked about it a little bit before off air, but uh, this is a unique season in so many ways. But this was supposed to be the last season uh, for the Pawtucket Red Sox. The Red Sox are holding their alternate site at Pawtucket this year. So we'll see what 2021 brings, but the team's expected to move to Worcester. You guys could be the last team, whatever you want to call it, the last players at McCoy Stadium uh, in a minor league setup. What has stood out to you about McCoy Stadium? What kind of memories are you generating there? And uh, what are your earlier views there just being there for two weeks? 
Um, well, I mean, I, I've never played here. I never got to come here uh, in AAA or anything. So, I mean, so far it seems like it's it's got a lot of history behind it. And uh, from everything I've uh, seen and heard from the people who have played here, they say it's a great experience for the fans and the players. And, um, I mean, I, obviously I can't, like, give any personal testimony, but uh, I I got to imagine playing there would just be a blast. Uh, I mean, the area is super cool, and I'd imagine staying here for a season would be pretty cool. Um, but, I, I mean, I'm, I'm new, so I, I can't really – I got to just go off of what people say and, but, but from what people say, it sounds like it's, it's a great ballpark with a lot of history. And um, it's, it's kind of sad that it's, uh, it's not going to be here after this year, uh, supposedly, but I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I mean, I'm, I'm stoked to be one of the last to uh, potentially step foot on it and play. So it is kind of a cool feeling, uh, bittersweet, if you will. Connor Siebel, one of the newest members of the Boston Red Sox organization and uh, now Boston's number 23 prospect who is in Pawtucket and getting set for uh, whatever comes down the pike in this uh, strange 2020. But, Connor, congrats on the, the new organization and getting acclimated and all that type of stuff, and we'll be following as uh, the weeks and months go on. And be safe and be healthy, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I right, appreciate it, guys. Much to discuss with Benjamin Hill this week, who joins the show from New York City. Hello, Ben. Hello, you're in New York. I don't, I'm assuming you're in New York. I am, as always, or almost as almost always, I am in New York City, specifically uh, the borough of Brooklyn. Um, also, in the borough of Brooklyn is you know Coney Island, home of the Brooklyn Cyclones. And I actually went to Coney Island. Uh, I've not been riding the subway much, you know, just given the whole pandemic. But I took the subway to Coney Island. I actually walked past. Uh, MCU Park, and I bought a Coney Island tank top that I'm wearing right now. I remember a couple weeks ago I was talking about how into flip flops I became. Now I'm just like doing my job in a tank top as well. And tank tops are real game changers. I'd always been uh, wary of them for whatever reason. I guess I didn't think they fit my aesthetic, but man, now that I'm wearing a tank top, I want to wear a tank top every day. Well, that's good. It's uh, you got to squeeze every last bit of summer out of the the final. Uh three weeks of summer. How did we get here? I was in September. Um, well, let's dive in. We got a lot to, to discuss with Ben. Uh, there's a story up on the site right now that we're going to get started with, and that is uh, a look at minor league teams um, and what they would have done or what they did do this year to honor the centennial celebration of the founding of the Negro Leagues, which happened uh, on February 13th, 1920, when the Negro National League was founded in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, a lot of teams from year to year will honor the the legacy and the history uh, of the Negro Leagues. But this year, obviously, was going to be something different. And we did see Major League Baseball uh, do its uh, Negro Leagues weekend, really, where uh, players wore the commemorative patches for the 100th anniversary. Obviously, we had Jackie Robinson Day slash weekend this past weekend, where teams uh, wore the 42 jerseys all weekend in a lot of cases. Um, this would have been a really cool year to see all of these celebrations. And you got a good rundown that's on the site of uh, what it would have looked like in the minor leagues. Take us through some highlights from this. Yeah, you know, this is uh, another one of my, uh, you know, what would have been articles. I've tried to be pretty sparing with them because obviously you could do that every single week. 
um, you know, wondering what would have been with minor league baseball and life in general. Um, but yeah, Tyler, as you mentioned, you know, the fact that uh, Major League Baseball had its belated Jackie Robinson Day, and that was, um, you know, tied in with the 100th uh, anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues. It just got me thinking of um, all the things that were planned at minor league ballparks. So my story takes a look, look at the things that were planned, but also in most of the cases when I'm writing about what was planned for 2020, um, you know, I'm also uh, looking at things that those teams had done in the past that would have informed, you know, what they would have done this year as well and what they will certainly do in the future. So it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge of uh, what would have been, what was, and what will be, uh, if all that makes sense. And putting the story together, you know, I, I really enjoyed doing it, just seeing all the different alumni, uh, you know, who still visit teams across the country. Um, and obviously, you know, the Negro Leagues, even with Jackie Robinson uh, debuting in the majors in 1947, the Negro Leagues in some parts of the country went all the way into the early 60s, uh, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. But regardless, um, you know, the men who played in the Negro Leagues, uh, even if they played well into the 1950s um, or early 60s, you know, they're all pretty old right now. So every time uh, you can go to a, a minor league ballpark and see Negro League alumni, um, you know, it, it's kind of maybe somewhat analogous to, a, you know, World War II veterans. Um, you just appreciate it more and more when you realize that uh, they're just very few among us right now. And, you know, minor league teams uh, in general are, of course, good at rebranding and changing their names for a day. And a lot of real cool stuff um, with teams, you know, rebranding as their city's, you know, former Negro League identities, uh, like the Akron Black Tyrites, the uh, Tulsa T-Town Clowns, um, Charleston, it's, it's not a Charleston team, but they have a connection to Larry Doby uh, because Bill Veck signed Larry Doby with the Indians and Mike Veck, co-owner of the um, Charleston River Dogs. Uh, you know, it's Bill Beck's son, so they, they, the Charleston River Dogs do a tribute to uh, Larry Doby every week, uh, every year, and uh, they've retired his number 14. They will often play as the Newark Eagles, uh, who was the Negro League team that Larry Doby played for before uh, coming to the major leagues as a member of the Cleveland Indians, and so on and so forth. I obviously am kind of rambling at this point and could just, you know, continue to ramble for quite some time. But, um, you know, it's a great exploration of uh, baseball history is looking at what these teams would have done throughout the country to celebrate uh, the Negro Leagues, uh, you know, of American history and uh, looking forward to seeing these things uh, continue to happen. And we've talked about this in the past with other promotions uh, that so many clubs, minor league clubs are taking what they were going to do in 2020 and just push it a year to 2021. A lot of these things were already purchased and uh, a lot of it's sitting in warehouses just ready to go and and to be showered upon fans or to be used in ballparks. Uh, obviously, so much of this was tied into the 100th anniversary. So next year will be the 101st anniversary, but you can never, you never really need a reason to celebrate the Negro Leagues and its history. How much of this do you feel like is just going to be pushed to next year? And we'll see maybe like a minor league wide celebration uh, of the Negro Leagues in, in 2021. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say, but uh, I'd say virtually 100% of this, you know, can continue to be done in 2021 and beyond you lose the nice round number and that's unfortunate because round numbers often, you know, bring more attention to, uh, to whatever the, uh, the event or incident or anniversary might be, but, you know, we'll have to overlook it, you know, 101 still pretty catchy. And, and regardless, uh, you don't need any really specific anniversary. Um, you know, it's the right thing to do to honor this uh, baseball history that exists in, you know, in, in so many minor league towns and cities all across the country. And um, yeah, it goes without saying, I guess we're so used to Jackie Robinson Day and, and uh, you know, just talking about the Negro Leagues and their history. It's still, you know, writing this article, I did still have this moment of just like, this is crazy. 
the reason we're writing about this is because like all these men were not allowed to play in the major leagues. And I know we all know that. I know that's all established fact, but every once in a while, I just take a step back. I'm like, that is crazy. How come it took so long? This is nuts. America, man. It really is kind of, I mean, it's, it's great, obviously, to honor the history and the legacy, but I think it's really important to keep front and center the reason why the Negro Leagues had to exist in the first place. And um, a lot of organizations and uh, Major League Baseball and, um, uh, you know, historians and people around the game have done a good job of that. But there's definitely a line that you have to make sure is still present between just, oh, cool old throwbacks and let's, let's talk about these great old players and all that. And also, oh, this is the reason why they were in that circumstance to begin with. Yeah, 100%. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And that's kind of what I was getting at. You know, I'm writing the story and kind of getting into the more like aesthetic, you know, element of like, wow, these, you know, whatever, Biloxi Dodgers uniforms are pretty cool. But then thinking like, all right, it's cool to celebrate this. But, you know, don't forget in the midst of that, just like, just a truly awful circumstance that made this all have to happen in the first place. And it's tough to have that balance between the, the more lighthearted and, you know, colorful celebration of you know who these men were and how they played the game and, and just the realities that, that caused them to have to do it that way. Ben let's um, switch gears to a different topic as we have uh, pointed out on the show it would be the final stretch of the minor league regular season this week which is uh, insane and uh, next week Labor Day always marks the unofficial end to the minor league regular season there are some leagues that go a few days past Uh, Labor Day to wrap up the regular seasons. But there is a tradition around minor league baseball in which, uh, especially for teams that are kind of out of it, not playing for a a postseason berth or anything like that, the final day of the season usually, there is a player who will attempt to play all nine positions in the same game. And you're working on something about that. Tell us about it. Yeah, you know, just I think the way we've all been doing, you know, at certain points of the summer, certain points of uh, the season, you know, our thoughts go to what, you know, would be happening at this time. And so I was thinking, you know, in that sort of uh, shell-shocked way, a lot of us are like, what? The season would be basically almost over right now if it was actually happening at all? I mean, that's just a crazy thing to, to, to think about. And the fact that, you know, here we are having this conversation in September, that feels surreal. Um, but I thought of Labor Day in the minors, and, you know, one of my first thoughts was exactly that, how it's such a common thing for uh, – a guy to play all nine positions. This is not something that, you know, minor league baseball could plan for on a top-down basis, or it just sort of seems to happen, um, not every single year, but most years. So I did a bunch of research yesterday, and, uh, you know, I hit on the number nine for nine positions, but I, I found nine examples just since 2014, and it didn't happen in 2018, so I found nine, ex- or in 2019. So I found nine examples between 2014 and 2018 of guys who played uh, all nine positions in a game, and it was almost always on, if not Labor Day itself, on Labor Day weekend. Um, for Tyler, that reason you mentioned that you know the teams are out of it; they're looking to do something fun and memorable, uh, and uh, you know kind of add some levity and intrigue to what is a grueling season. Uh, the other thing that teams do, you know, is sometimes they will all use one bat, the same bat throughout the course yeah. of the game. Um, so that's another one. Uh, I couldn't find enough examples of that to you know build an article around it, but I found nine guys uh, since 2014 who played all nine positions in a minor league game and just writing a story about them and what their experience was. Um, you know, uh, just going off our, our previous MILB.com, you know, game recaps from those, from those days. So it begins in uh, 2014 with Nathan Orff of the Brevard County Manatees, Manatees and takes us through 2018 when uh, three players did it that year. Nash Knight for Dunedin, 
Hernan uh, Irabarin for the Louisville Bats and Brandon Polizzi for the Vancouver Canadians. They all did it in 2018. And uh, it's, it's weird. Only five players have ever done it on the major league level. And, you know, I was able to find nine who did it just in the last, you know, six years alone. So uh, it's a much more common thing in minor league baseball to play all nine positions in the game. And in some of those, you know, re the research that you've done and calling all of these guys together, what kind of stands out as a theme other than it just being the last weekend of the season? Well, you know, often, obviously, these players who do it are players who have, uh, you know, some level of utility man background and have shown their versatility throughout the course of the season or the course of their careers. You know, I also think, you know, generally speaking, they're the players who do this um, are not top prospects. Most of them didn't even touch the major leagues. And in a, in a lot of ways, I do think there's this kind of unspoken thing where, you know, the managers who give these guys that opportunity, I think there's kind of this uh, unspoken knowledge of, you know, you're probably not going to get to the major leagues. Your career might be much closer to over than it is to beginning. And, um, but, you know, you're going to get to do something that puts you in a special club that you'll remember for the rest of your life. So there's this kind of sweetness about it, I find, or bittersweetness, as it were, um, to have the opportunity to do this. But usually in the context of a professional career that didn't, you know, fully uh, go that player's way in terms of true long-term, you know, major league success, certainly. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz, and you can uh, check out all his stuff up on the site right now. And uh, enjoy the tank tops and the flip flops, man. Thanks for thanks for doing this. We'll talk yeah, man, it's a, it's an endless summer over here in uh, my home office. And uh, if you want to talk to me about tank tops on Twitter, hit me up at Ben's Biz. It's a, it's a topic that's on my mind lately. So uh, always uh, happy to talk about this uh, new sartorial phenomenon that's going on in my life. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, guys. That will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Sam, as our prospect fun fact before we head out of here, presented by Nationwide. Yeah, I didn't get to talk too much about him in the first segment, uh, just trying to keep things streamlined. But we mentioned in the first segment, Taylor Trammell uh, got traded from the San Diego Padres to the Seattle Mariners. Um, big move for him and a big move for that organization. Mariners obviously rebuilding right now, kind of where the San Diego Padres were a year or two ago. Uh, so they get Chamel. They add him to their big list of outfield prospects right now. Jared Kelnick, Julio Rodriguez, uh, Kyle Lewis. Obviously, Kyle Lewis right in the driver's seat, right there with Luis Robert Prayo, Rookie of the Year. going to be really interesting to see how that sorts itself out. But you can ha never have too much talent in a system. We'll see how things shake out in a year or two. But this is the second time Taylor Chamel has been traded at the deadline. He was also traded last year from the Reds to the Padres. Uh, and you might ask yourself, like, what does that mean about him? He is a top 100 prospect, but some people are down on him because the production hasn't necessarily been there for him. He is somebody who certainly has shown speed in the minors. Uh, he's shown power at times. The power could be a little bit more for him. But it, his combination of offensive tools is actually pretty unique in minor league baseball. So here's the, the fun fact that I, I came up with. Since 2016, which is when he first appeared in the minors, uh, there have only been six players to meet these requirements uh, to have a hundred stolen bases as Taylor Trammell does to have at least 30 stolen or 30 home runs, which Taylor Trammell does and have a WRC plus of at least 100. So they have to be an above average hitter. They have to have hit at least 30 homers and stolen a hundred bags, only six minor leaguers. Think about all the minor leaguers that have played since 2016, only six meet that requirement. Trammell is one Kyle Tucker, 
who we know is a pretty good power speed combo guy when he was in the minors. He's another Sam Hilliard of the Colorado Rockies, as Tyler knows well. He's another John Andrioli, Jose Siri, and Stephen Wren are the others as well. Um, Obviously, there's not some huge names on here. If Fernando Tatis Jr. had stayed in the minors since 2016, I'm sure he would be on here. Uh, But still, the the fact that it's this unique tells you why teams are trying to get him. And we know that he might have another gear in there for production once he starts to figure things out and get things consistent at the next level. Really think this year would have been a big year for him um, once he got settled in the Padres organization. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because there was no minor league baseball. But there are reasons to why teams keep believing in Taylor Trammell and keep, keep coming and trying to buy him and adding them adding him to their minor league mix. Uh, and this is a big reason why, because his skill set is fairly rare across the minor league. So hopefully come 2021, maybe next year, a triple A Tacoma in the Mariners system, uh, or maybe even a double A Arkansas, uh, you know, he can start to show it on the field a little bit more, but as things stand, even now, it's pretty cool to see what he's been able to accomplish since he first got to the pros in 2016. So that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. And before we go again, uh, our biggest thanks to all of you for, for your support and for tuning in, for getting in touch with us, sending us your questions and your thoughts and tweeting at us and, uh, and all the encouragement and all the support that you've given us. Uh, it's pretty cool in a, a year in which we have no minor league baseball to continue to expand uh, the, the base of people that listen to the show and engage with the show and all that has been really awesome for us. And so I, I think I speak for Sam when I uh, thank you from the bottom of, of my heart and our hearts and uh, stay safe and be well and keep wearing your mask and washing your hands and, uh, and treating each other well. And uh, we'll be back to do this again next week for you. Uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you then. 